managing that that giant kindergarten is a challenge. But unless you have good people, you have nothing in our industry. Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. The voice you just heard was this episode's guest, Toby Esser, chairman of independent London wholesale broker, AFL. Toby is a veteran of the London market broking scene and is a former CEO of Cooper Gay, which grew many-fold under his ambitious and energetic leadership, both organically and by high-profile M&A. The biggest of those deals was the 2010 merger with major US wholesaler Sweat & Crawford, which at the time formed the largest wholesaler in the world, moving $3.5 billion in premium. AFL is Toby's newest growth project, which began just over two years ago. I've interviewed Toby many times over the years, and I think it shows in this interview. We have a really wide-ranging discussion, from growing an independent business and handling the precocious prima donna-like talent that Toby just referred to just now. Uh, And we also touch on market reform and, of course, the brave new wholesale landscape that is forming in the wake of the massive consolidation taking place among the world's biggest brokers. Now, a quick note on that subject. I first spoke to Toby just before the Willis Aon deal was announced. So as soon as the news broke, I went straight back to him for an update. I've edited the new bit in where I think it works best. I hope it all makes sense. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Toby, why don't you tell us um, how you got into insurance and um, how your career sort of develops and how you got where you are today? Well, I guess like most people in the insurance industry, I I didn't wake up one day and go, I really, really wanted to be in the insurance industry. Um, You know, I got lucky, as I think most of us did. And I think it's one of the reasons why the market is such a good place, because I think insurance people understand that they've all got a little bit lucky in doing the job that they do, as opposed to wanting to be an investment banker, wanting to be a solicitor, wanting to be an accountant, wanting to be some other specific profession. I think the insurance industry, we kind of ended up in the insurance industry. And then most of us have had a good life and have have done well from the industry. And I think we consider ourselves fortunate as a result. So therefore, I think it's a little bit unusual not that there's that much humility but maybe slightly more humility than some of the under other industries so I actually started I uh, left school didn't want to go to college my father was at Oxford uh, was somewhat disappointed that that I the the third child didn't want to go to Oxford uh, and actually it turned out none of the six did which was you, you could have got in Sorry? No, uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Probably not. I probably would have had to work harder than I actually did work. So maybe not as well. But if I'd wanted to and work hard, who knows? But I didn't. I traveled, uh, came back. I had a bug for the city for no discernible reason. Uh, something something I'd heard, something I'd, I'd heard said, really didn't know anybody in the industry. But I knew I liked numbers and I liked money. And so I did a meet the city course um, and then applied, stockbroker, commodity broker, insurance broker, and got a job with Cooper Gay, age 19, uh, actually through IPS, Trevor James, uh, who got introduced to me. And uh, I reminded Trevor about a year ago that 37 years ago, he was actually the one who uh, got me my first job. Just to clarify, IPS is a, is, is a recruitment consultant. If you've worked in the London market, you're probably bound to have met or seen their advertising in the press or, or, or uh, you know, been to see? Because I think I was speculating that they may have had an office in this very building where you are now, right? Yeah, I, not, not sure. I wasn't too far away. We were in Mart Lane uh, when we first started out in 1983. I'm not sure if they were here, though. Great. And then, um, so and so your, your story really at Cooper Gay is that you just rose up to becoming the CEO by the end. I mean, how, how quickly did that happen? 
Yeah, well, I think I was probably asked a question by, by one of our directors at about 18, 19, 20, and, and he said, you know, what, what do you want? And I said, well, what, what, what do you mean? That's a strange question. He said, well, what, what do you think you're going to do in the business? I said, well, I'll run the business. Of course I'll run the business. And uh, I, I guess there was a little bit of um, maybe uh, ignorant arrogance, but that was certainly my ambition and my desire all, all the way along. So I, I think I got a couple of breaks uh, post the Mexican earthquake in 1985. There was very little available reinsurance capacity in the world for Mexican business. And uh, it was pesos, premium reserves, all sorts of problems. And we had a contact, a marine contract that ended up on my desk. And the numbers were a lot more than any number I'd ever seen since I'd been with the company. It got me excited. And we went out and we basically discovered a way to layer business that had never really existed in the London market until that point uh, and to place Mexican accounts. And for a year or so, we hit every single account that we saw and the brokerages were multiples of what we'd ever made before. And I, I learned reinsurance, facultative reinsurance. I learned what that was all about at that point. Which led on to, in 1988, the company decided to create an office in, in New York, in Wall Street, and asked me if I would go. Um, certainly didn't volunteer to let me see America. I'd never been to America. I'd never been to New York. I had no idea what I was letting my, in, myself in for, but it was a yes or no. Do you want to go or don't you want to go? So I said, yes, of course. So age 24, headed to New York, what was essentially going to be a treaty startup. Uh, I left. Uh, to come back to the UK four years later and we didn't handle a treaty at that point uh, but what we did do was a lot of facultative reinsurance business which is what I'd learnt and the timing was great knocking on the doors of the AIGs and the Signas and the Continentals and the IRIs and those companies who were prevalent at the time and we handled a lot of Latin America a lot of multinational business and I was really uh, you know the, the, the guy running that business uh, and we built a very successful business Loved it, but wanted to run the group. So I recognized at that point I couldn't run the group from New York. I was going to have to come back to England. So I came back to England and uh, had a few years battling to, to change things around. But by 97, I was uh, MD of the group and uh, we were a small business still. I remember that year we made 300,000 profit. Uh, we were sub 10 million business. What year was that then? Around 97. 97. Yeah, came back from New York in 92, uh, initially took over non-marine business and then gradually took over the whole thing. With AFL, I mean, you took over AFL, that was completed in September 2017. When you said that, when you, when you did that, you said, my intention here is to build a strong London market wholesale broker at a time when I truly believe that there's a gap in the market for that. Is that has, how's, how's that plan progressed in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, I think the gaps got bigger and the opportunity has got better. So that's great news. Uh, and clearly, we didn't influence either of those situations. And is, I don't want to second guess what, what the gap getting bigger is. But, uh, you know, um, I presume is that something to do with JLT getting taken over? <laughs> yeah, obviously, they're, they're the biggest part of it. Um, you know, probably the, the largest London market wholesaler at, at the time. Um, but the continued consolidation that we've seen, RFIB, Tyson's Integro, you know, is, is but one. So the, the independent wholesaler and, and JLT was starting to have difficulty in being called the independent wholesaler anyway with their, their move into U.S. retail. But they still were a very significant wholesaler. But the independent wholesaler um, has got uh, more and more scarce over the last couple of years, which is terrific. I've always been a wholesaler, I've always been independent, it's always been my game and I felt there was a gap and I think the gap is even bigger. The opportunity is being shown by what's happening in the marketplace and the market getting more difficult means people are coming to London more. So that's terrific as well. So has, has it changed your thinking? Has it made you want to double down quicker or you know try and grow faster or get more capital and grow quicker and do that kind of thing? Is yeah. it all about people, about not uh, picking up displaced people? Yeah, yeah. So so people are everything. You know, the number one, the PE guys, number one PE guys say to me is, oh my gosh, we underestimated the issues of all the prima donnas that, that you have to deal with. How do you do that? And London market especially, even more, although you get that in America, of course you do, and internationally, 
London is even more extreme, I think, both on the underwriting and, and the broking side. And managing that, that giant kindergarten is a challenge. But unless you have good people, you have nothing in our industry. So getting those people, getting them fast, obviously, they're more available, again, due to JLT, due to some of the, the mergers and acquisitions that we've seen. We have more availability of good people. But getting those people is the tough thing. Would I like to double down? Yes, I'd like to double down. Yes, I'd like to go a lot faster. Uh, we doubled in business last year. That's terrific. Could we have been even quicker? Yes, but when you accept that you're going to do it the way that I'm doing it, um, where I'm personally controlling the business, where we don't have a big institutional backer, uh, well, we haven't gone out to do major M&A on the back of PE. You have to accept those limitations of what you can do. Uh, so we're trying to balance the books whilst growing incredibly quick. Um, and keeping the happy medium between those two things is a good challenge. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enjoyable challenge. And why not um, private equity since there's so much capital knocking around the world? Why, why wouldn't you want to do it that way? Because... I think if you're going to do it with private equity, you should do it with very significant numbers. And when I looked prior to AFL, I didn't like the opportunities that were available at the time. I didn't like the values of the businesses or the businesses that were there. And I think that you, you need, either need to go big and you do that with the backers, with significant backers, or you go relatively small and you do it yourself. And I decided that was the better route at the time. Do you think the valuations, what the valuations just, these are sort of 13, 14, 15 times EBITDA multiples that are being paid for um, intermediary style businesses. Mm. Do you just, what do you think about those kind of numbers? Yeah. Well, I think it's great if you're selling. It's not too good if you're buying. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a buyer at six, seven, eight. I'm not a buyer at 14, but I'm definitely a seller at 14s. So you're building something that, uh, you know, an organic build, uh, build up. Uh, and obviously, so you said you were able to double in size last year. What sort of, um, what sort of initiatives and things have you been most pleased with in, from a standing start a couple of years ago? Mm. Well, well, we'll do a little bit bolt on. But yes, predominantly the idea is, is predominantly to, to grow organically. Um, the challenge with growing organically, we have an amazing pipeline of business. For, for a broker of our size, you know, the, the pipeline of, of producers, the opportunities that present themselves to us all the time is, is fantastic. But especially in a difficult market that we're in right now, if you don't have the professionals to be able to take advantage of that opportunity, you can't do the deals. So we, I think, over the last, particularly the last 12 months, have been really, really excited about the quality of the specialist professional that we've been able to bring in. And we're finding that we're really succeeding where we've got the right kind of individual, where we're competing with, with other wholesalers in the London market. We think that our average individual who is trying to trade and do the deal is better today. And that's exciting because the opportunities do keep coming through the door. But we have to nail those opportunities, and we have to do that with the right quality individual. And what's the pitch to those sort of uh, to the people that you're targeting, out and about? That you know, great producers that you really would love to come and uh, work with you here at AFL. What, what's the pitch to them? Um, your company sold, and you didn't get a big piece of it. You can get a nice piece of it here. Uh, have a track record of making employee shareholders lots of money, and we'll do that again. And it is for all of the employees we have an ESOP for example so every single employee now has a piece of 10% of the company which is nice and executives obviously have an additional piece uh, we're fast growing uh, be there at the start where you understand what our vision is where we're going what we're trying to do where you have access to everybody in the company top down where you're given a very long leash long piece of string you can go do whatever you want to do if you think it makes sense go do it you've got the backing of the company to go after that um, in terms of reputation the business that is building its reputation a lot of people want to deal with us that's a nice situation to go into and you don't have to come in and bring in a load of business yourself we already have the pipeline just be good if you have a couple of couple of good clients, couple of opportunities, terrific. Predominantly, just do your job really, really well because we will introduce you to a pipeline of business that if you do your job well, you can take advantage of and you can grow. Um, 
a question that arose actually there was there was a really good article in in um, the insurance insider the other day about um, um, London-based brokers perhaps bemoaning uh, the that we've got this great hardening market in the US ENS particularly great great for London wholesalers but um, as opposed to previous maybe what you had in 85 86 or or, or at other hard market um, cycles that the London market has has been retrenched partly and do you, are you finding that is a shame that you can't f- uh, the specific words in the article were that people can't f- underwriters can't fill their boots like they used to when you know when you see the price of something doubling mm. you you can't just write three or four times as much of it mm. as you used to um are you finding that as frustrating at mm. all or, or being london based yeah i i think i helped them probably significantly with that and so, <laughs> so yes i absolutely echo that um there is an absolute absolutely huge opportunity but lloyd's most especially is limited in their ability to take advantage of that. I think we're starting to see a little bit of um, what we used to call the fringe market, the the non-Lloyds players being able to help in that situation, a a Convex or a Fidelis or companies such as that. Uh, Others looking and saying maybe we should be in London to take advantage of the opportunity that's coming into London, but Lloyds is restricted from a premium perspective. And, And mostly, I would say with Lloyds, mostly for sensible reasons. Uh, you know, you can argue different syndicates and different lines of business, but mostly for good reason. But that business that's coming in, uh, probably we're not taking advantage of the opportunity as much as we could do. But I wouldn't wish to be overly critical of it because unless certain certain underwriters had said enough is enough, we wouldn't have seen the change market. We wouldn't see the opportunity that occurred anyway. Yeah, you can't have one without the other. Not really. Okay, um, to talk. I mean, we've already mentioned uh, that MMC JLT, but maybe are there any specific ways, uh, really things that you could point to? Obviously, it's such a big market affecting thing. It's kind of a macro thing, isn't it, almost? But are there any specific ways that it's it's really changed the landscape and changed it for you? Um, yeah, I, I are think... Are there any, any classes, for example, or something where you think, you know, this has actually been a cracking opportunity or something that actually very specifically said... I think for others, you know, we could say in other uh, uh, other independents to say, well, this is my chance to try and get into reinsurance when I haven't... Mm. I've shied away from it, mm. uh, for example. We've seen that. Um, w- was there anything, we, you know, where you had your strategy meeting the day after? I'm sure like everybody else, uh, we certainly had one when I was working back at the insurance inside. Like, what are we going to do about all this? Yeah. Um, I'm sure you did that. You know, what was your what was top of your agenda when you when that happened? Yeah, in, interesting question. I mean, I, you know, the the number one area that that I think was a massive advantage was obviously the aviation, where they were so strong in aviation and they had to sell the aviation business. And you know, there's there's a huge opportunity that that presented itself. I don't think I looked at it specifically like that so much. I think what we said was, look, there is a a, a huge opportunity to hire a good number of very professional strong specialists from JLT who would be a very good fit for us as a business now, our CEO of AFL is ex-JLT specialty Jonathan Bynes who, who runs the business so you know clearly he came in before which was very good timing so he clearly knew a lot of good specialists and we've hired individuals casualty property professional lines you know across the board and would continue to to hire if we see the right kind of quality individual. I would say it was more just, here's a business that hires more people within the London specialty market than most, has better quality than most, and a lot of them are available because they handle business for US retailers, we handle business for US retailers, we are not conflicted. The US retailers know we will never be conflicted. And as such, you want to come to us when your retail client is giving you grief for where you are, we're a perfect scenario. Others, you could go there and then they get bought or they're already part of another retailer or they have another conflict of some reason. You're going to move the business as an independent US retailer to somebody, we're a pretty good fit. Now, here's that interruption I told you about. This is the point in the recording where Toby and I speculated for a few minutes on what a possible Aon Willis deal might mean for the market. I've cut that out. Instead of that, here is a sequence uh, where we discuss the announced deal and Toby's initial reaction to it. I started by asking Toby whether he thought the deal was a good or a bad one. 
I think it depends which side of the market you, you sit on. Uh, I think if I was an underwriter, uh, already concerned about the dominance of, of the big three, uh, that dominance has become the big two. And uh, to have such a huge percentage of your business with, with only two brokers, uh, I think has to be a negative overall. I think from the broker's perspective, it, it again is an opportunity. Uh, maybe not quite the same opportunity in the wholesale reinsurance world that JLT going to Marsh was, uh, but most certainly an opportunity. A uh, great opportunity for all the independent retailers, particularly the, the fast-growing American retailers, but also an opportunity within the London market. Yeah, and looking at the London market, obviously, you know, where, where you're playing, specifically, what are the first things that come to mind? I would, uh, I would presume there'd be a big question mark about what's happening to willis Ree. Yes, I think that that's a question mark. I mean, not not for me to judge on, but uh, clearly, will the combination create a reinsurance broker that is just too big, uh, and will the regulator have a look at that? Uh, that's clearly a question. But from our standpoint, our stand uh, point, you're going to get some individuals within Willis Re who won't be happy in the merged organisation. So for us, that might well give opportunities for hiring. I think other independents uh, and, and growing reinsurance broker within our arena, they're going to have opportunities as well. So you sharpening up your sort of hit list? I, I think so. May, again, maybe not in quite the same way as JLT because JLT did uh, do so much business with independents as opposed to Willis, much more network. But absolutely, there'll be opportunities. There'll be opportunities within the specialty areas. And um, which classes specifically? I mean, things like marine other uh, construction other things like that those are things that, that we should be looking at i think so you know mo most of the specialties so financial services i'd probably add to that uh you know facultative reinsurance uh some area of specialty treaty reinsurance as well uh i think those all come into it but anywhere where, where you come across a strong team particularly those who uh, either have a strong professionalism in what they do or maybe some client access that isn't in-house Willis. So it could really be any any kind of specialty class of which Willis, of course, is is a main major player in London. Um, uh, we could include political risk, trade credit, KNR, yeah. Specie. I, I think the list is is, is fairly endless. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah, they, they've long been very good in those areas, um, and, and it's a question of picking those out. Plus you're going to find that Aon has people in pretty much all of those areas as well. So somewhere along the line, someone won't be happy. And it's generally when you get those situations, you can get some good people out. And speaking as a wholesaler sitting in London, you, you mentioned about it being a big um, opportunity for uh, large retailers, perhaps almost certainly in the US. Um, would that then be, there'd be a really good knock-on? Would that be a knock-on effect for you guys, um, you know, for those independent wholesalers in London who are now supporting or having the first time in many years the opportunity to support um, a challenger retail broker uh, on the ground in the US who's now able to pitch for accounts that they thought they would have been certainly locked out of? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, we, we've all seen the, uh, you know, the very fast growth of the USIs, the hubs, the Allianz, uh, of this world and uh, independent U.S. retailers uh, who really have a good opportunity to compete on the major accounts these days uh, with, with Willis going to Aon, it gives them an even better position. And those retailers do like to use independence in London uh, as opposed to using their competition. So absolutely, as a partner of those brokers, we would see good opportunity. So yeah, another another good chance for for, for increased deal flow, and obviously you can you can take some of the talent uh, that would have been in in, in in the Willis or in the Aon teams. Yeah, servicing that type of business exactly. Uh, I think slightly less so in the rest of the world because those those are very much American retail brokers, and internationally you don't have the same sort of growth of independent brokers. Uh, you know, the big three, big four, really are quite dominant uh, outside of the U.S. and Europe. Um, I was thinking about what what might be. It's very difficult to, to, for you to second guess, but what what would be the reaction of the big global uh, insurance clients of uh, you know of of Aon and Willis that you know you know up until a few years ago they had three or four um, potential uh, brokers that they could use, and now they're really down to two. Mm. Well, I, again, I think much like the market, I I think when you have a lack of choice, it, it's never a never a very satisfactory situation. I don't think I would be too happy in that. Uh, there are the independent networks. Uh, we're a member of WBN, and WBN is is certainly an enormous network, 
and maybe the the networks are the ones that will be able to in the future provide alternative um some willis willis broker network wbn worldwide uh, broker network worldwide broker network worldwide sorry broker i'm getting network. really confused <laughs> yes right the okay. independent one you're the, that sorry is, you're yeah. a member of that and yeah. i was going to say no, no, no yeah. i'm terribly confused we'll strike that from the record um <laughs> um Greg Case, uh, the CEO of Aon, has just uh, come on um, uh, an analyst call, which is the sort of thing you have after one of these big announcements, and he said it's all about um, being better, not bigger. So it's not about Aon regaining the sort of top spot in the broking world, uh, but it's about doing things better and, and being able to give them the breathing space to be able to be more innovative. What, 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 would, what would you say to that? Well, I, I, I guess that's what he has to say. That's probably what we would all say. I mean, if, if we just literally said big is better, um, that wouldn't be the greatest uh, thing to say, and I, I don't think that would be received very well. Uh, clearly, being the number one broker in the world is key, and clearly the synergies that they'll get from being the size they're going to be is, is, is fundamentally key. Uh, I'm not sure how you necessarily get a lot better just because you're bigger. Okay, and I was just wondering, uh, you know, how how do what's your gut telling you about how um, the market and how how Willis shareholders might react to all of this? Well, I think as 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 we've seen so far, share prices of both Aon and, and Willis have dropped very quickly. We're in a marketplace where shares are dropping. So yeah, it was you know. it was not a good day to know what what, what the undisturbed um, um, exactly. prices what action might have been because of course we we're, we're actually talking on the day when stock markets were wired are falling mm. about nine, eight nine ten percent because of an oil the thirty foot percent fall in the in, in the oil price yeah. overnight as a price was broken out between sort of Saudi Arabia and and, and Russia, but um, yeah so difficult to tell. But what would your gut be telling you? It, it doesn't seem to be a huge premium, uh, so my, my gut would say from that perspective, it, it's not like a JLT deal, which was an absolute slam dunk. Uh, it's something that we know has been discussed for about a year because it formally came out a, a year ago, and I guess if you're a shareholder who really didn't want it to happen, you probably would have exited by now. So my assumption is, is if that kind of a premium stands and continues to stand in some fashion, probably most people will accept it. Let's, so let's talk a bit more about AFL and where it fits in w with the marketplace. And obviously, when, when you, when you um, you know, a couple of years ago when you when you came in, um, you know, you, 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 you played quite big on wanting to build a, a lean and agile kind of tech-saffy operation where you want to avoid legacy, which is obviously a, a great thing. How far has that been possible given the realities of where we are in the market and the way it currently trades? Mm. Not... not not as close as I would like it to be because of the, the market and because we do operate in a marketplace. So, you know, if we took electronic processing, we're no further forward than we've been. Um, you know, the Lloyd's Blueprint, lots of good things in there, but for me, not enough focus on the number one holy grail, which is how do we process our business electronically? How do we avoid this paper society that we're in? Uh, and we have to do our business as a marketplace, within a marketplace, we have to. So I think that's held us back a little bit. Uh, we certainly are very tech savvy. We are very efficient as a business. We are almost paperless. We really don't have any legacy at this point. We, we have all those tick boxes, um, but we've not been as successful as I would like because of the constraints of the marketplace. The other side is I would like to have been more in, in the world of insure tech, uh, in, in, in what we've tried to do in, in that world. But the reality is a broker only really makes money out of insure tech business when there is premium flow and when a broker is finding market and sitting between client and market. And if there is no premium, you can't make any money. And in most insure tech business, there is no money at this point. Um, you know, we... I think we, we've done an okay job at incubating some businesses and looking at some early, early days businesses. But when you look at the premium that they generate, it's not there. InsureTech today is still really about process. It's about data. And until we move from process and data to actually underwriting product, it's tough for us to make money. Right, yeah, so it's still really something for venture capitalists and, and brokers will get involved a bit later on. 
that, I think that so. Right you know, because as as a broker, you don't really want to be just money, and we are just money at this point because it's the process things that can make the money or the data control things that can make money. And hey, some of them have made fantastic money, and that's terrific. But ours needs to be a double dip. It's not about just being money. We're about being money who can actually then provide broken services. Okay, um, we're talking about uh, modernization. Well, great. You know, obviously, you're saying that perhaps um, the, you know, the state of how the market is at the moment has, has been holding you back. Well, you know, happily, we're, we're right in the middle of uh, probably the biggest uh, London market attempt at reform in any of our careers, actually. Um, so, what's your view of the future at Lloyd's uh, blueprint? I think generally very favourable. Um, you know, I think that the changes that were made uh, when John Neal came in really had to be made. Uh, I think the combination of that at the same time as Tom Bolt going into work for AIG, work with Dupro, uh, and AIG being forced to make the changes that they made uh, created the new 800-pound gorilla. Uh, it kind of used to be AIG on their own in the old days. If they decided the market was going up or the market was going down, uh, end of each quarter in a soft market, they'd come into your offices. What do you have? What's available? Suddenly that visit stopped as the market was changing. Uh, but through through their issues, AIG stopped being that 800-pound gorilla. But the combination of Lloyds and AIG with everybody else really did turn the market and turned the American market and led to the first kind of casualty-driven hard market since 1985. So that is all very, very positive and, and keeping Lloyd's professional and profitable and, and being a place where people want to do business uh, is, is all extremely promising. Um, the wish list is huge and very, very ambitious. Uh, obviously, John Neal has two jobs, which, which is also very ambitious and, and challenging. Uh, but in general, I think it's terrific. I just don't want us to lose the focus of what really, to me, is the number one issue within this marketplace, and that is making sure that we can process our business efficiently. And we've been talking about it through three Lloyd CEOs now, and we need to finally be able to do that and not just say we're going to do it. We need to actually do it. So do you think they've got the right sort of priorities now? No, because I think that should be priority one, two, and three. And it's not priority one, two, and three. Okay. Okay. So some of the futuristic stuff, you think you could uh, you can leave that for the future, uh, you know, about uh, capital structures and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I think that they're, they're, they're good potential things that can be brought along. I'd love to see Lloyd's involved with, with actually raising capital on behalf of the smaller syndicates. You know, I, I think that's an exciting potential move. I'd love to see it easier for new entrants and entrepreneurial entrants. Uh, you know, if we can make that easier. Unfortunately, what's happened recently is we've seen some of the more entrepreneurial ones go. Uh, that's not good for us. That's not good for Lloyd's. I don't think that getting rid of the follow market and the subscription market is is a good thing for Lloyd's. Um, and it's not that it's not that Lloyd's has made that a a, a thing they want to do, but we need to be careful. Syndicates in the box. Uh, trying to make the process a little bit simpler, a little bit quicker. We need to be careful that we don't lose the essence that is a marketplace. Lloyd's is the only marketplace for insurance in the world, and therefore Lloyd's is the only market that will continue to be creative. And one of the reasons why it's creative is because an underwriter at Lloyd's can make a decision on a new deal, on a new idea, on something that's a little bit different, and can take a share. He wants to take a share because he knows that the follow market will second-guess him correctly second guess him and we'll say well we're not sure if you can't place the account clearly there's something wrong with it or the pricing needed to change or the terms need to change so it's easier to some for somebody to take a lead position on something new and something creative than it is to say i'll do a hundred percent where there is no additional help there is no second guessing so you're worried about kind of making that follow fairly automatic and kind of number crunchy and not uh, kind of that element of the seat of the pants, obviously with a huge amount of analysis and all the other stuff that, that, that you need to justify it uh, that, and all the analysis that goes uh, with that. But, so you, you, you're worried about um, if someone's swinging a billion dollar line because they've got all this automatic follow sort of you know algorithmic capacity <laughs> behind them, 
then they might they might to say no. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Because you know, they, yes. they're going to be responsible for a hell of a lot. If they knew that they're only taking a 10% line, they've got to wait for three other people who are equally, say they're not leading that piece, they're not being asked to lead that, but they perfectly well could lead. Right. It's the collective knowledge. You know, you utilise that collective knowledge, which has always been great for Lloyds. You know what? But, th- that, but the only criticism of that is that that is expensive if you've got 10 people writing 10% lines who all who all have to justify to the PRA and FCA that they are perfectly capable of having led that piece of business and they've made, they can justify every last um, box tick of that decision that they've made when they put that line down. That's expensive. It's 10 times more expensive than doing it the other way. But you're saying it's worth it. Yes, I, it doesn't have to be in every class of business, uh, but in certain class of business, I, I think it's important. And yes, Lloyd's base cost is way too high. You know, convex, do you go in Lloyd's, do you not go in Lloyd's? No. It's an 11%, 12% differential. So, you know, that that is key. And I do understand and agree that cost needs to come down, but not but in every line. Out of process and things like that, you think there's, there's more low-hanging fruit in the process and all that stuff. And so Absolutely. get it all electronic do that first and then worry about other sort of yeah, highfalutin ideas. The, the cost base of that is, is enormous, so yes. Great. Okay, good. But we, 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 I think we're putting the world to rights here, uh, <laughs> Toby, which is really good. Uh, you mentioned about syndicate in a box, about entrepreneurialism. Uh, what do you think of it? Do you, and do you think that's something that, uh, you know, is you as an entrepreneurial broker with MGA structures and that kind of thing, you could be sort of dabbling with? Uh, no, I, I, I don't know that that we look at that certainly at this stage you know historically I was very involved with raising capital for Lloyd syndicates maybe helping you know syndicates MGAs would you do that now or do you think that's an exciting little opportunity because it's you know you get these get these businesses completely on the ground floor you've got the chance of building the next Hiscox or something yeah no I I think it is interesting definitely and you know where where I do get the opportunity to help or to advise I I like that you know I purely out of interest I think that's that's a very interesting direction to be involved in I think that um, it's it's difficult at this point to imagine that in the early days AFL will have that kind of an opportunity I think you need generally a bigger infrastructure um, to be able to to get invited into those situations, sometimes a personal connection it, it can occur like that. But it's from a personal perspective, I like that. I think it's interesting. But it definitely appeals to you, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. Um, I, in general, like to help people who are entrepreneurs to build a business. So if it's within the insurance industry, I have more probably more to add than outside of that. But I like to help people who are entrepreneurial. Right. Um, before we kind of close on the blueprint, I'd like to ask you if, if there's anything in there. I'm kind of kind of guessing what you're going to say, but is there anything that's not in the blueprint that you really wish was in the blueprint? There's a lot. Of, there's so much in that blueprint, obviously. Yeah, there is so much in that blueprint. Um, you know, that that's a huge amount. And if you guess this, you've done well. But probably my only thing is I would like to see an expansion or at least a desire to expand in licenses and I want the license to be like the American ENS license so I think that Lloyd's made a mistake by trying to expand geographically and dumbing down the brand as I call it I think what they should have done is try to get licenses to do business elsewhere that will come into London through the usual wholesale process. For example, Mexico provides a lot of business into the London market, needs the London market, it all comes in as reinsurance. Why would it not be good to have an expansion of the NAFTA agreement and, and have Mexico as part of that and have Lloyds be able to write ENS in Mexico? But not for Lloyds to set up in Mexico but for the brokers to access London through an ENS rather than through a reinsurance. Also, it's about having conversations with the Mexican regulator and trying to get absolutely get a proper Asia, license. Asia, Latin America, you know, elsewhere. I, I would like Lloyds to have a desire to expand its licenses, and I think that would be a very good thing for Lloyds. I think it would be a very good thing for local markets to provide more capacity. But I understand where it might not be an admitted, fully admitted license, but an equivalent of an ENS license, I think would be an exceptionally good thing. And I never really hear any chatter about it, and I, I'm not sure why. 
think I've got to, got, to, got to ask you to clarify about what you mean by dumbing down, you know, something like, you know, Singapore or the license in Rio de Janeiro, that kind of thing. Is Why is that dumbing down? Well, I, I think there's, there's a couple of things around that. I think that Lloyd's is a excess and wholesale market. And I think that's what Lloyd's has always been. And my belief is Lloyd's should continue to be that. I don't think that Lloyd's is and has been a successful market for bog standard admitted normal retail business. That's not what it does. And its infrastructure, its cost base, its way of doing business is not set up for that. So it needs to be, and the market of the last resort is, is the wrong description because it doesn't, it, it gives the wrong impression. But is the market that you go to when something is too big, too unusual, too difficult, too something. And that's a good thing. And it comes in to London for that reason. When Lloyd's started in Singapore, I said, all that will happen is the same brokers who try to access Lloyd's through the same business and get turned away because it's too cheap will start giving the business to the Singapore market and it will get written at the same prices that have been offered to Lloyd's in London for a long time. And as such, you're dumbing down the brand because it's Lloyd's, but Lloyd's becomes too available. And Lloyd's shouldn't always be available. It should be available in business that it wants to write, but not just for distribution. Lloyd's is not a distribution, distribution, distribution play, as Hank Greenberg would always say at AIG. It's a completely different type of business. What happened in Singapore? Exactly that. It wrote all its business to Lloyd's brokers, but to the local offices of the Lloyd's brokers at prices it would never have written at in London. Good. Um, thanks for clarifying that. Because of that, what you've just said, um, the Presuming you're the idea of the non-complex uh, exchange uh, at Lloyd's of, of, of a way of, you know, getting rid of much easier sort of vanilla uh, retail kind of commercial business um, uh, of dealing with that as part of the blueprint. Uh, you know, the, 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 actually, it's the, well, I'll have to look up the name of it. But anyway, the, 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 what isn't the complex risk exchange, the but the electronic exchange, stuff, yeah. the standard exchange. Uh, you know the high volume, low premium uh, risk exchange that's, that's proposed in, in Blueprint. So I'm, I'm, I'm inferring from that that you, you think it's probably an irrelevance. I, I don't get it. I absolutely, I don't get it. So we, we just got offered a, a, a very nice risk in San Francisco that is a 2000 build, 150 million building, absolutely beautiful building. And uh, the all risk part of it is, is for free and is written by the local market and they all follow themselves to do it. The quake part, they don't want and the pricing is very interesting and terrific for London. So why would Lloyd's be set up to write the or risk part of it at the pricing that it's set up to do with the kind of aggregate you're looking at? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. The cost base of Lloyd's to write that kind of business where you have local insurers to write that sort of business. Why take on Allstate? Why take on Geico? Why take on Travelers? That to me doesn't make any sense. Uh, you have to understand what sort of a brand you are. And if you are Marks and Spencers, be the best Marks and Spencers that you can possibly be. Don't decide that I'm Marks and Spencers, but I now want to be Aldi because it's a different brand. It's a different business. Okay, changing the subject a bit, um, recently uh, the FCA, that's the UK's uh, conduct regulator, uh, took a bit of aim at the London wholesale market uh, on, on non-financial misconduct uh, and inefficiency. So you'd agree with them on inefficiency, but what about um, non-financial misconduct, which is, is another way of saying uh, what, you know, what has been happening, would be the sort of behaviour, that bad behaviour that's been uncovered, uh, perhaps it started with the Bloomberg article about uh, 18 months ago, uh, and the kind of culture survey and all the things that have been uncovered by that. Um, do you think the FCA is justified when, uh, if, it's, if it's holding a mirror up to us and saying, uh, sort yourselves out? Mm. 
Well, I, I think it's it's not just a FCA, is it? it it's society as a whole, and, and I think society uh, has has changed enormously over the last few years, and I think what might have been acceptable in the past is no longer acceptable, and that, that's a good thing. You know, the way that we judge people, the way that we judge actions today is very different to, to the way that it has been historically. So we should always be questioning ourselves, and we should always try to make sure that we're, we're acting in the right way. Um, so I'm 100% in favour of that. That's, that. that's great. I do think that the City of London, um, whilst it's most certainly not perfect, it, it does suffer a little bit because it, it isn't necessarily the most attractive place in the world for everybody to work in. Uh, it is dominated by suited men. Uh, and unfortunately, the people who make applications for many of the jobs are suited men. And therefore as much as we might try to get more women into the marketplace, it isn't always possible. So I don't think it's always completely fair to say that the city is just behaving in a chauvinist fashion. I don't think that's necessarily true. But we should have diversity as much as we possibly can. We should make sure the right individual has the right job and is employed for the right reasons. And I think a general push across society to do that is a very positive thing. So actually, it just chimes with what you said at the beginning about that young Tobiesa. It, it's a certain type of person that 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 goes. Oh, I love the city. I want to go and work in the city. And do you think that's probably does appeal to a male sort of type or not? I think historically it has more. You know, I I do think that's changing a little bit, and and I think that's that's a good thing. But then you know, the millennials as as a generalism are, are kind of not as into money as we used to be. So. Now, you have to understand the way that people are changing a little bit as well. Um, but, you know, I, I don't like reverse racism. I don't like reverse um, behavior. I don't think that's so good either. But I think we should try to behave in the correct way towards everybody. And I think we should do our best to be fair and even across the board. Uh, and I think if, if we're being brought up where we're not doing that, I think that's a really good positive thing. Great. Um Obviously, a lot of the, uh, the those big institutions, you sort of expect them to have these things, you know, to have uh, diversity and inclusion offices and programs and training and all that kind of stuff. So what can you do as a smaller broker? You know, is it is it really just something that only the bigger institutions can really do? I think that as a bigger institution, you have to do that and you have to have the policy and it has to be written down and corporately, that's what you have to do. As a smaller business, you can really actually do it. Maybe what you write down, maybe your policies aren't as official as the big guys, but you can actually really do it, and you can actually really behave in the right way. Because, and, and is that just down to leadership? I noticed that you had an, you've got an open plan office, and you just got, you don't have a corner office, you don't have a fancy. Maybe you got quite, it's maybe your desk is slightly nicer than someone else's, but otherwise. Is it down to that kind of stuff, just sort of doing leading by example? Yeah, I think so. The way that you want everyone else to behave? Yeah, I think so. I I think that in a smaller business, you can see everybody. You can see everybody. You can be with everybody. You can have a knowledge of everything that happens. You can can employ everybody. Um, You know, I used to say in in, in the old business, fine once I employed everybody, and it was still fine when everybody employed was employed by somebody I employed. The challenge is when it moves beyond that. And you get to be a bigger business, then that that whole culture, that whole way of behaving, changes a little bit. And then uh, that includes obviously com- whole companies that you bought. That then absolutely, well, whole companies that you buy. You know, you hope that Sweat and Crawford was a couple of thousand people, for example. But I knew that their culture was a good culture. I, I got that really early on, and then it was relatively easy for me to see. Look, cultures aren't that different, but here's a few things that we want. And to, to manipulate rather than try to totally change. But it is a challenge to totally change in that big an organization. So I think in a smaller business like ours, we can make it very, very clear to everybody what's acceptable and not, what's not acceptable. If we have some of the wrong ones, and look, we have got rid of a lot of people over the last year or so since, since I took over the business. Uh, if they're the wrong ones, you can get them out. And you can say that this is just not our culture. So sorry, but we're going to move on. That's really, really interesting. Um, and what do you do? You think that these, um, you know, this new way of doing business is 
is actually going to improve productivity and make it uh, easier to attract and then retain the best talent. If, if you mean by the, the new way of doing business, you mean being, being more socially aware, um, I, I think that it will, one, make businesses a fairer place to work for everybody, which, which is really good. I think it will make it a nicer place for everybody to work, which is also equally good. I think it will make some people thrive more, but not everybody. There will be some people who won't thrive as well in a, in a business that is like that. But it's the way that we should do it, so that's fine. You think, and, and actually, in the main, it will be better in the majority. You know that it will be better. That overall, it will be better. Definitely, it will be better. Better. You know, I look. Society is is a better place. And again, back to the millennials, they have a much stronger desire to work and be involved in the right kind of an environment to have a better lifestyle balance with their work. Um, you know, we maybe 30 odd years ago were more intent in, I'm just going to work, I'm going to succeed. And, and it doesn't matter what happens in my personal life or how I'm treated. I just want to succeed. Do you kind of regret that? You know, you went off to New York. Actually, I don't think anyone would regret going to New York when they're 24 uh, to start a business. But um, do, you, do, do you kind of, are you slightly envious of some of the, the people who've got a bit of a better life work balance and all that kind of stuff? No. But, but, but equally, I, I would never say to a 24-year-old, do you want to go to New York? You've never been to America. Yes or no, make up your mind right now. Where do I live? Don't worry about it. I'll sort it out. I would never say that. And, and I think that sort of behavior today is clearly wrong. Was it wrong 30 years ago? That's a different issue. Well, because if they failed, is that because if they failed, you know, you, you'd feel that you hadn't really supported them enough. Uh, I, I don't think it's that. I think you're dehumanizing somebody. I mean, you, 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 they are a human being. They do have a life. They might be an employee, <laughs> but you do need to treat them like they have a life and they're a normal human being. So, you know, today we look at that sort of thing. We say, well, you, you have to treat people correctly. Uh, I remember one of our, our young guys once being um, sent to South America and uh, somebody told me that his girlfriend, they weren't yet married, was pregnant. I said, well, you know, do we, do we have the right kind of insurances? Well, they're not married. I'm like, that's, that's not the point. You know, we, we definitely need to make sure that we're looking after these people. We have a duty of care to them. We can't behave like that. Uh, and, you know, we, we went through the process and looked after them properly as I would expect them to do. But that wasn't the case 30 years ago. And we, we've learned along the way. We're, 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 I think we're better people and we're better society as a result of it. That's really, really good. Um, the only other thing I was going to ask you, which I didn't ask um, before I ask you whether there's any kind of any other business that you want to bring up. Um, being a small broker, can you actually be a generalist or do you have to be known for a few niche specialisms? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I would start by saying that what we do in this market is a specialist to start with, right? So, we're not a retail broker. This is not a retail market in London. Predominantly what Next Generation is doing uh, is wholesale business. We have the MGA in the States. Uh, we've got a reverse flow business in, in Manchester and we will grow through the wholesale world. So automatically that is specialist. We increasingly in this difficult market that we're in are referring to ourselves as specialists. And I think the key is to have individuals who have really good specialist knowledge of the product and of the market that will write that product. Without that, you can't get deals done today. So being smaller niche specialist is really good in today's market. Now, I think that we can cover most markets within the wholesale arena and be specialist in each one, but we don't really try and touch anything unless we are specialist in that particular class. That's great. I was wondering, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to bring up before we sign off? I think we, we, we talked about most areas of the business. You know, the, 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 the fascination, I think, for me at this point, um, bearing in mind where we sit today, is coronavirus. And what is coronavirus going to do to us all? Uh, and this is the only conversation I've had in a long time that hasn't talked about coronavirus at some point. 
when you think of all the contingency cancellations of holidays, flights, sporting events, concerts, you name it, starting maybe with Italy, stretching through Europe, stretching the States. Uh, we're already talking to companies who ban travel. Uh, there's another company in the insurance world, this is, who today said they're not having any foreign visitors anymore. I was with Australians yesterday, said they're going to start to stop travel as well. It won't be continuing. Uh, Italy, England just got postponed. Italy, Ireland this weekend was postponed. All of the Italian football matches are... are That's, big, that that was rugby audiences. you're talking about, wasn't it? Just for, that was just rugby. for listeners. Yeah, the football, though there's no, no, no one going to the football matches. They close the doors. You start adding that up, it's trillions. It's not billions, it's trillions. And the big question, obviously, what, what in, in the wider audience, what does it mean to the economy, etc. But in our world of insurance, that could be an unbelievable bill. Who's footing that bill? Um, I don't know. I, I, I was feeling that there's not a huge amount, not massive exposure on the contingency because most people, it's mostly excluded and people don't buy it back, which is silly, which... I'd say is a failing on the on the uh, on on the broker that was selling them that actually that they should have said you need this cover of course you need this cover and at the moment you buy it when there isn't a communicable disease panic because uh, you know that one will be along every ten years anyway so you should buy it because this is the cover you actually mm. need because this is what is going to cancel your event I can't think of that many events other than communicable disease and and terrorism that would actually cancel a big event anyway. Yep. Because they're bigger than the venue that they're in. They're bigger. Some of these, you know, like the Mobile Congress in in, in Barcelona or the Geneva Car Show. These are massive events. You know, they're, they're kind of bigger than than the venue. You know, it wouldn't just. What else is going to cancel? It couldn't be a burst pipe because right. it fix it. You know, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll see because uh, I I agree a lot didn't buy it, but I think a lot did buy it, and so I think a lot is covered. So it's coming. I think so because you know when, when when you start doing the math, it is so enormous. It, it doesn't need that many. It needs you know ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent. The global economy will be affected, but how many did buy it? And I don't know the I don't know the answer to that one. What about um, other? I mean, I, I would think of trying to think sort of outside the box with things like trade credit, um, with unfulfilled orders. Uh, companies going bust if airlines are going bust anyway right so yep. what about shipping firms going bust what about yeah orders which have got deposits on them that are now frozen and are in some weird legal limbo which underwriters may be asked to foot the bill yep. for credit uh, or where the supplier's gone bust because you know maybe it was a Chinese supplier where they've simply gone bust yep. uh, and there's certainly um, I was reading a very good article in the FT the other day that um, you know the, the Chinese authorities have been declaring lots of force majeure uh, situations that you know, uh, I don't know if it's the Ministry of Commerce that actually is the arbiter of whether something is a force majeure, mm. and they've certainly s declared force majeure on many things. So there'll be a lot of frustrated contracts, and there might be quite a lot of money hidden in there. And I don't know whether that's going to bubble into trade credit. So I'd go look. If I was being still an investigative journalist, I'd go looking there. So well, you you do know that people are going to look to try to claim where they can claim. Are you worried about the politics? That's the other thing. Is it's the classic if it becomes big enough. Uh, you know, by government decree, uh, as we know, 9-11 wasn't strictly covered, uh, but it, of course it was covered morally uh, because yep. everyone felt that the insurance industry should pay. Uh, in these kind of situations, do you think um, we can have... And we had something similar maybe with the Boston Marathon. I think there was some quite a lot of coverage was pro bono, kind of, well, you know, kind of um, ex gratia. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Do you think we're going to have a lot of ex gratia sort of, you know, people getting lent on to, to pay because it's probably the thing that's probably the right thing to do? Yeah. Well, well I, think, I think people will try. Uh, politicians will try, companies will try, individuals will try, and at the very least, the cost of defending those situations is enormous, and we're already in a hard market, and we're still at a position where some of this reserving has still to really bite. So I think even without coronavirus, during the course of this year into next year, things could easily get worse. Coronavirus is only going to kick it on. So we might just be at the start of a proper hard market. And if we do get to that, life could be very, very different. 
So, but, yeah, as pr- provided the world doesn't end, it should be quite a good year in 2021, is what you're saying. <laughs> I think so. I think there's, there's going to be a few people looking for a bit more capital. There's going to be a few saying, well, this year's okay, but we're going to really start heading 21 and writing a lot of business. Excellent. Well, um, Toby, thanks so much for your time. I know you're a really busy man. Um, you, seem, you definitely, you, you're enjoying yourself because, you know, you've been smiling throughout the whole of this uh, this interview and so I just wish you well and uh, you know we'll catch up again soon sounds good thank you Mark thanks a lot Voice of Insurance is produced by me Mark Gagan music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com <laughs>